a Canadian company, the capital does not exist in Canada. They have to go to the U.S. And so there's some really interesting dynamics happening where some of the Canadian investors, you know, get squeezed out. If you think about the technology that was developed here at the universities has left the universities and is now being invested in by U.S. investors, which is great because those companies can continue to develop, but those returns are going back across the border. So that, you know, we aren't, you know, from a purely financial perspective, uh, not able to benefit as much as we could if there was larger pools of capital available in Canada for those, what I would call the kind of scale-up type companies. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Anne is the Managing Director of Healthcare and Life Sciences at Silicon Valley Bank Canada, where she brings a combined 25 years of experience in both capital markets and life sciences. Her role allows her to contribute to the growth of the ecosystem in Canada by providing unique access and insights into markets, companies, and investors. In 2021, Anne was awarded the Life Sciences Ontario Volunteer of the Year Award. Anne, welcome to Reboot Health. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you. So um, I, I, I usually start, Anne, as the first question is by getting guests just to sort of outline how they came to arrive at sort of this intersection uh, of what I call sort of health innovation in general. And may, and I know you gave a short, I gave a short bio, but maybe you could add a little bit of color for the audience and how you ended up in SVB and in life sciences particular, as opposed to ICT, as opposed to clean tech, as opposed to space. What excited you about the life sciences domain? Yeah, so I, I sort of came about it in a really, uh, I don't know, a zigzag or, or roundabout way. I um, grew up in a, a family of physicians and, and thought I would go into the family business. Uh, so I uh, did my undergrad at McGill in biology and, and quickly realized that uh, that it wasn't for me, but really didn't know what, what was for me. And had, every once in a while, you have these sort of pivotal conversations in your life. And I met somebody who worked in capital markets who suggested that uh, my analytical skills that I um, that I would have learned in a biology degree might uh, be helpful and transferable into capital markets. And so I found myself thinking I might be a biotech analyst, but really just doing analytical type work in, uh, in capital markets, so public equity markets, pension fund investing, broad across industries, um, but always had this real passion for life sciences. And uh, so just through my, again, through my network, had a conversation with, with somebody who uh, worked in big pharma uh, and thought that might be uh, an interesting way to, to take that business experience and, and move back into the life sciences space. And so I did that for, for a number of years, really working in pharma or consulting to pharma, um, but always big multinational pharma or big Canadian healthcare focused type companies. 
And I joined the board of Life Sciences Ontario in, uh, I guess it was probably 2016, 2017, and discovered all the amazing innovation yeah. that's happening in Ontario and thought I, I really like to transition my consulting practice uh, and work with early stage companies. And uh, again, pivotal conversation. It's, it's great. You can do that, but don't expect to get paid for it because <laughs> the startups can't afford your consulting fees. Uh, so at that point, I, I knew I wanted to, I, I already had the passion for life sciences. I knew I wanted to work with earlier stage innovation, homegrown Canadian ideas and uh, right place at the, at the right time. I think I, I came across uh, Silicon Valley Bank and they were expanding in Canada and, and looking for somebody that had that combination of, of sort of, I guess, financially literate capital markets experience that understood uh, the, the way, the, the business side of, of life sciences, but, but also uh, had a bit of a scientific background. So that was uh, August of 2019, three years ago, I, I Congrats. landed at CB. So, so you started, just, just want to dig in a little bit. So you started out with a life sciences background. I know you have a financial background as well. Did, did you sort of do the life sciences financial, then find yourself moving towards the capital market of life sciences? Or was that a gradual evolution that you sort of realized it to sort of, you know, up your game that once you kind of got in there in advance that, okay, now I need something to layer on top of that. Like, what was the order of, of that process? Yeah, it was, it was uh, gradual and a little bit uh, of me willing to follow a path that looked unusual compared to the the typical, I think, science grad. So it, the most obvious choice would have been for me to do, um, you know, continue to right. study biology and, and perhaps pursue graduate school. Uh, and I, I didn't know what, where I wanted to go. Uh, and so I, I thought, okay, what, what can I do in the near term? Um, and Toronto, you know, luckily has, is a great spot if you do want to work in the financial industry. Um, and that analytical piece, I think, was was really appealing for me. And so I think really what drove a lot of it was just a ongoing kind of passion to keep learning different things. Um, and I think that that's really important in, in this role that I'm in now because it helps me see... Uh, the the nuances of running a business of being an entrepreneur that are completely unrelated to both life sciences and and capital markets and digging into the details of, of financial statements that you know i've been able to have this kind of third pillar i suppose of my expertise that really is around growing a business and and uh, uh scaling a business and and leadership skills and uh so i don't know that there was anything planned out just to go back to your original question of like, Oh, I, I need to make sure I get financial right. experience on my resume. I need to make sure I have this. I need to make sure I have this. And then um, I'm going to find this amazing job at SVB. It really was being open-minded to, uh, to the opportunities that were, were placed in front of me and, and willing to say, I can do this. And that that's often critical, right? As we said, just being open-minded. I think some people try and plan this too. Um, to perfection and it just doesn't, and then they get like a <laughs> right turn all of a sudden and now their life's upended. So yeah, yeah. no, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, so you're at Silicon Valley bank. Now you've been there for three years. Uh, you know, I'll speak personally. I didn't know a lot and still probably don't know a lot about what Silicon Valley bank does. So maybe, you know, maybe you could provide a bit of history for the audience. Um, and, and maybe particularly also 
for founders who might not be sort of fully aware of what Silicon Valley Bank does, where it might kind of come into their business sort of growth and their scale, where it could add value. Um, just a little bit of color on that, because I think we think, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, I thought it was a TD bank or whatever, yeah. Bank of Montreal, but yeah. but it's very different, uh, right? Yeah. So, no, 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 for sure. Uh, so I, I had the same reaction when I saw the posting. <laughs> I was like, what, who is this? What is this? Is yeah. this a real bank? Is this legit? And what, what's interesting is any Canadians that I meet that live in uh, the yeah. San Francisco Bay Area or Boston, all, yeah. oh yeah, I know who SVB is. And they don't even call it Silicon Valley Bank, they call it SVB. And so um, what I think is, is sort of interesting is that I think at some point in time, there, there was a, you know, an internal saying that we bank the unbankable, um, which I thought was interesting. But you know, almost 40 years ago, so in 1983, a group of investors in, in sort of Menlo mm -hmm. Park, kind of the, the sort of VC within the VC community, really recognized that there was this gap that you know, startups could not find a bank that was really interested and uh, designing products around their needs. Um, so whether it was lending to companies that didn't have any revenue, um, but were on a really exponential right. scale of growth and able to raise lots of capital, um, we really kind of pioneered this concept of venture lending. So debt financing alongside equity financing. So I would say that's what we're most well known okay. for. And since then, we've really grown to a full scale commercial bank with the caveat that we only bank companies in the innovation economy. And so I think that means a few things is, is we've developed a real skill around uh, creating uh, an ecosystem internally, whether it's our products or services or even employees um, that really understand entrepreneurs and what they're trying to do. And so this, you know, whether you're in tech or life science or clean tech, uh, we've got people with expertise, network, experience within those pillars. And so I think from a life science perspective, that really gives us uh, a unique offering in that we're having conversations about clinical and regulatory mm -hmm. pathways with biotech founders, and you're never going to have those conversations with another bank. And so I think that experience, it makes us a, a true strategic partner. Of course, lots of banks will say they're, they're, they want to be your strategic partner, but I do think that it is a bit different. We're you know, we're, we're a big bank of 6,000 people globally, but of course, compared to Canadian banks, that feels a little bit more hands-on and, and a lot smaller. So uh, we, we definitely have that strategic type relationship. And I think that the last piece is because we've been doing this for 40 years, um, we do have, we're kind of at the hub. So we've got a network um, that's really like no other. So oftentimes we're, you know, if you think about the really, really early stage founders mm -hmm. that are just looking for like, how do I find out who would invest in my technology? How do I build a pitch deck? We're a good source of information mm -hmm. for all of that. Then it's, do I need to open bank accounts in the United States? How do I go about doing that? Uh, we have a whole team of, of people in the US that can help. And then at that point where they're raising their Series A or looking to raise their mm -hmm. Series A, we can certainly help we can help make connections, we can help um, and then provide debt financing alongside that equity financing. So I think really when when they're looking at, okay, how do I build out that capital stack? 
I need to raise $10 million in equity, I can get an extra 2 million, say, in debt financing that's effectively non-dilutive. Right. So you're not having to take another $2 million of dilution from, uh, from additional investors. Got it. Do you, do you find, and I know you've been there three years, but do you find that Canadian founders are sort of taking advantage of your services relative to the American, or it's still fairly shiny and new and they're not quite sure how to engage with SVP? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think we've been working with Canadian companies for almost 20 years, I think. Um, they, Especially the ones that have experience working in the mm -hmm. U.S. We've had our banking license in Canada and have been lending to companies from the Canadian branch for uh, just over three years. And so I would say it really is company dependent. Mm -hmm. So there's some companies that have experience with us um, have worked in the U.S. before where it's really a very obvious kind of pattern recognition. I raise my Series A, I call SVB. Um, there's other companies that I think is, you know, it's, it's very typical Canadian culture where we are a little bit debt averse and uh, it seems really not very logical to add debt to your capital structure when you probably aren't going to have revenue for many, many right. years. Um, so I think that there's definitely some work to do, um, in Canada to get people comfortable because it, it can be useful. Um, I think the, the other end of the spectrum is that there's people who only want to raise debt and don't want to raise any equity at all because they just, they don't want to give away any of their company. And that's something that we, uh, strongly discourage, um, because you're going to end up just like having credit card debt that you can't manage it will feel a lot like that and you really won't be able to run your business. Got it. And, and, and the last question is just from a founder's perspective. So it sounds like sort of series A is kind of the sweet spot where you'd probably want to sort of, you know, reach out and maybe sort of see what opportunities, things a bit earlier, probably they're not ready from the growth scale perspective. So from a founder's perspective, uh, series A. So I, I would say the typical company engages, certainly engages with our website and our content. Okay right off the bat, um, because there is a lot of material there. Uh, they engage with SVB Canada at the Series A, because that's the point where we will where we can provide debt financing, okay. um, but are very often engaged with my colleagues in the US. The minute they need to have a US hire or they're raising capital in the US where they need a US domicile bank account, um, that's where we see earlier stage companies engaging with us. Got it. Okay, so that makes sense. So I want to, uh, you know, one of the main reasons that I want to get you on the show is because I, because I think SVP, you know, obviously given that history and background, you have a very unique perch of sort of seeing both what's happening in the Canadian ecosystem versus what's happening in the U.S. I really wanted to kind of spend the majority of the show sort of just sort of understanding that difference, shall we call it, and and then sort of level setting on. Some of the thoughts, because I know I'm sure you're engaged in a lot of conversations as my sort of what do we need to do to kind of level our game up and, and whatever perspective, whether it's infrastructure, IP, all sort of everyone has their different perspective. But I just wanted to sort of level set. And, and I sort of want to start, I looked up some sort of background material, you know, in 2021, which I think was um, a stellar year by probably any accounts from venture in, you know, just in general across all domains, you know, Canada raised sort of in life sciences, 1.8 billion, did 102 deals. This is out of C CVCA's data. And then if we look at the NVCA, which is, you know, the American side of it, they raised for life sciences, 37.8 billion at 1200 deals. So there's clearly a discrepancy. And I think there always has, and you can maybe put some color on that as well. But 
what's also sort of buried in there, and I always sort of look at the, you know, the big headline numbers are great, but I guess sort of scratching below the surface, it was actually this, and this is in the US, the second consecutive decline in early stage investments in terms of deal count, which is sort of interesting. So seed and early stage kind of shrunk, big deals obviously got bigger. Um, and, and life sciences in general, although it was kind of up and to the right, was slower than other areas. So it's still, you know, I think people always feel a little bit slighted versus ICT and, you know, all these other kind of fancy, you know, fintech and all, where a lot of money goes, Web3, all this kind of stuff. I just wanted to know what's your perspective in general at a high level on how we Canadians compare to U.S. in the life sciences? Are we gaining ground? Are we getting better at sort of converting research to commercialization? Or are we just holding our own? And then, I mean, what are your thoughts and sort of concerns on this sort of early stage investment sort of data point? Is it just sort of a blip or is this sort of decline going to suggest that maybe sort of coming out the next three or four years, pickings are going to be a little slim in life sciences because not a lot is happening at the early stage. I shouldn't say not a lot. It's still a big number, but it's trending down versus up. Just sort of curious yeah. on just sort of high level thoughts on some of those things. Yeah. There's so many. I know. To, well, take your time. To dive into. There's so many. Take your time. To the stage is there. all yours. There's no competition. So maybe what I'll tackle is I do I I think about everything whether it's capital invested, infrastructure, yeah. access to talent, all of that kind of in stages. So there's that. I even sort of like early early stage. So like university right. yeah. research, um, and so I think that the capital flowing into that sector in Canada could probably use a boost. I think we, we underperform versus our US counterparts, but the science is amazing. So I think that we've got lots of talent um, there, but I think that there's, uh, that's kind of the, that's the funnel or the, the pipeline for that kind of next right. sort of, you know, like seed and series A investment. So, and just what um, you're talking about the, getting that research out of the universities into sort of the commercial pipe, like that first step is. Or, or just getting the research, just having lots of okay. research to, to got pull it. from. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So it's, you know, you're that that's not funded by the venture right. community. And so I think that, you know, we, we, it's a, it's a, a bit of a myth that that research in the U.S. If we look at U.S. versus Canada, you know, we sort of Canadians have this view of the United States. You know, whether it's Boston or the or the San Francisco Bay Area, as oh, you know, everybody pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and this wonderful entrepreneurial society. When really, it really took government funding yeah. to kind of create this flywheel effect. Um, in both cases, in both, you know, there was a strategic regulatory financial decisions made by governments to to set the stage and so i think that there's a ton of work that needs to be done to to really kind of kickstart the momentum that has already been done in the in the us so i think that's kind of the first piece um i would say we're in a in a pretty good position at that next stage so that seed and series a i think the good companies in canada are getting funded I think there's increasing interest from U.S. investors in what's happening in at early stage companies in Canada. I feel really optimistic about that, and I don't know that we're punching above our weight. We certainly are in some areas. You know, if you think about sort of cell and gene mm -hmm. therapy, uh, there's some really interesting research being done in psychedelics in Canada. So I, I think there are some areas where we punch above our weight. 
and some computational biology, which is, I think, an SVB term <laughs> that sort of replaces AI. the AI okay, ML in drug discovery. But I, but I, I like that. I, I prefer that it sounds less buzzy and more like an actual something. Um, we definitely are, are really well known in that space. And when we look at the, when we look at the numbers, uh, I would say in terms of companies raising capital, we're in third place compared mm-hmm. to uh, San Francisco Bay Area and Boston. So I think we're 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 definitely doing well there. It's when we get into um, what happens when okay, so we've raised that seed Series A, and now the company needs to raise a hundred million dollar round um, for the for the U.S. based company. That's a pretty easy ask. There's so much capital in the U.S. for them to tap into. They're probably operating within the local communities. They've got some warm introductions uh, and the capital exists there in the U.S. For a Canadian company, um, the capital does not exist in Canada. They have to go to the U.S. And so there's some really interesting dynamics happening where some of the Canadian investors, you know, get squeezed out. Um, The... If you think about the technology that was developed here at the universities has left the universities and is now being invested in by uh, U.S. investors, which is great because they those companies can continue to develop. But those returns are going back across the border. So the you know we aren't you know from a purely financial perspective uh, not able to benefit as much as we could if there was larger pools of capital available in Canada for those what I would call the kind of scale up type companies. Right. Do you, do you, so there's sort of a recent chat and, and I guess, I guess there's two versions of that, or, or, or maybe I just want to sort of land on what you're thinking here is foreign capital is good. There's nothing wrong with foreign capital as long as it doesn't pluck the IP and then take it with it to the other jurisdiction. So there's that. And then I guess the other side of that coin is why aren't bigger pools or, or how, probably a better way of saying is how do we incentivize the bigger pools of capital in Canada? Obviously it's, we're talking about the pension funds here to play within the Canadian ecosystem, right? Cause I mean, Omer's ventures does exist, but they're kind of based out of the Valley and they're investing down there versus here. So, and, and, and so I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts on that. And I think that's a very complicated sort of portfolio question. There's structural issues around that, but maybe from a life sciences perspective, I don't know if you can maybe lend some insights about you're hearing yeah. what your thoughts are. You know, maybe to a certain degree, that's on us, um, that we need to do a better job of promoting the value of the sector, the value of investing in life sciences, why it's not as risky as you might think. You know, you can imagine that these, it requires expertise to do diligence on these companies and the venture investors have it. Uh, and, you know, in many cases, the big the big pension funds are it's just easier if, if you've got so many tech companies that you can invest in. And it's easier to understand their business model. Uh, so let's just put our money there and not allocate as much to healthcare. Um, so I would think I think that's a difference between Canada and um, and the United States. I think there's more. Uh, institutional dollars allocated to healthcare investing in the United States than there is in Canada. You know, we see some Canadian dollars, pension fund dollars flowing into the United States because, you know, as much as I'm saying there's not enough capital in Canada to support the scale-ups, when you think of those like really large pension funds Mm -hmm. like CPPIB, the opportunities in Canada aren't big enough 
for CPPIB. And so there, that, that capital is flowing into the U.S. So I, I think it's multifaceted. Um, but uh, I would say the very first step is for us to get us. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, people like you and me who are really looking to build the ecosystem um, to, to do a, a little bit of a better job of, of talking ourselves up. We have a real tendency to talk to ourselves. <laughs> Um, and we all yeah. nod our heads, um, but I think we can do a, a better job of working with you know, policymakers and decision makers uh, outside of our own little bubble. Okay. And, and I'm just going to sort of, is that also, I guess the question is the chicken or the egg. Is, is, it, is it also a, f- a factor that capital will come if sort of there's a strong, dense sort of pipeline of ventures as well? Or does that kind of come later once sort of the capital sees that, you know, the Abcelera's, the repair therapeutics, like you just need a couple of those to succeed and then that capital gets recycled? Or are they really looking for a robust ecosystem that they can sort of put down and then, you know, they can they can have their, their choice, like, you know, the Boston's and the San Francisco. I'm sort of which one yeah. kind of comes first or, or how does that work? What's your perspective from... So, yeah, so my perspective is the, I like the recycling okay. analogy. I think that that, uh, I think we see that what we need is successes and failures. I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday. So you have a success like an Accelera mm-hmm. and then, you know, there's, they have capital to yeah. acquire companies, to uh, support, to invest in new companies and they have they have talent as well. So now they've got the experience, they've gone through what they've gone through, they can spit out talent that they can then go off and start right. their own yeah. companies. Um, so I really think, and, and there's gonna be some failures, it's biotech, right? And so having somebody who has you know, gone through this and it hasn't worked out um, is now ready for the next opportunity. Right. Uh, so I think a combination of both and, and having that, having Canadians that have done it elsewhere, but also having Canadians that have done it. At right. Home. So, so we talked about capital and you led me into sort of the next, you know, topic of, or around the table that always gets sort of thrown out is we don't have this talent, right. Or we don't have the quality of talent or the number. I mean, I guess different people have different perspectives. Um, and we're not talking about the science necessarily. So we're not talking at the university level, but we're talking about that sort of commercialization talent. Who are the people who've done it before? Who are the executives that can, you know, take out their playbook and the Rolodex and sort of move things through in an efficient manner um, and, and sort of, you know, make, make those VC dollars work. Are you seeing a significant, and I'm not sure how you can define it, but significant change in our ecosystem in terms of talent, either coming back or growing that talent? And if not, sort of how do we do better? And I, and I know, I guess, this is the only one I know, and maybe I'm sure you might be familiar of other tactics. I know Quebec has a sort of a tax policy to attract sort of, you know, outside people outside of Quebec into the life sciences industry. Um, I think it's been effective. I know some early stage ventures who've moved there specifically to sort of take benefit of that for team members. Any thoughts on sort of just that talent piece? Like, where are we? Are we, we're obviously probably moving forward. Yeah. Are we moving forward fast enough? Are there other yeah. things that we can do that you think are just low-hanging fruit to attract these people back yeah yeah so i do same thing i think about it from that sort of you know research talent startup scale up so i think that i do think the universities are doing a great job at attracting talent um it never i don't know why 
we as Canadians are, get so excited when somebody from overseas wants to come and work here. Um, but but I see more and more, you know, U of T is is just you know always in the news and always uh, seems to be attracting great scientists. Um, what I hear from uh, senior management at some of the larger companies is, you know, I will always hire scientific talent in Canada. Um, there is uh, it. it great talent here. I, I don't even need to look elsewhere for it. So if you think about that kind of startup phase, it's everyone everywhere is struggling to find people uh, to fill spots. So I don't think that that's unique to yeah. Canada. I, I Every day I'm getting messages from companies saying, where do you think I should be posting this job? Is there, you know, can you share this within your network? Um, it's when we get to that scale up phase where um, you know, two years ago, it was, it seemed to be a, to pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. We'll say, uh, how are we going to hire that executive talent? I think a big shift has happened, for better or for worse. Where you know, it's really easy to hire someone to work in Boston or in uh, New York or in Chicago or anywhere really, St. Right. Louis. Um, to be the CFO of your Canadian company because they've been the CFO of a medical device or a biotech company um, and they've done it before and they're willing to work out of their home office and then travel back and forth to Toronto. Um, so I think the pool of talent has opened up, but we're still uh, looking south of the border for talent as opposed to developing talent right. here in Canada. Uh, so um I would argue that we do not have a shortage of talent in Canada, that we don't need to look south of the border, but I'm not sitting at the venture capital firm right. with a fiduciary duty to my limited partners. Um, it's, I can't take a risk saying, I think this CFO has transferable skills from the multinational company that he worked right. with to now work with a startup. So I think we, do need to develop more executive talent here. I think the way to do it is probably what's what's happening organically is we get the CFOs that are that are Boston-based, US-based that have the experience, but the the controllers and the VP finance um, they can be Canada-based and and eventually move into those roles, uh, and and that will help develop the talent uh, here at home. But I feel pretty confident that the talent gap is starting to close. Great. Um, if, if we, for the, I'm just sort of curious as you sort of look through the ventures, cause maybe, and obviously not looking for anything specific, but if we're looking for attracting, let's say a Canadian who's left and gone to Boston, San Francisco, where we want to attract him or her back again, is capital an impediment? I'm then wondering how, how linked are those two things? I've been in conversations where if we have enough capital then we can pay them enough and they won't want to be in Boston, they can come here, but the problem is Boston can pay them, you know, one and a half times or two X more. Yeah. And so we're not even in the game. Is that like when you look yeah. at ventures and you see that, do you yeah. see that actually playing out or is it, no, that's actually not the issue. It, so that has come up in a couple of conversations I've had where that is absolutely okay. the issue. I, I, part of me wonders is, you know, does Canada just have that reputation now that people won't even entertain the discussion to go and work for a Canadian company? Because what I've heard from investors is we're absolutely willing to spend the money it takes to get executive talent and to, to try to hire those Canadians to, to come back. Um, I think I've seen, you know, anecdotally, mm -hmm. I've had conversations with Canadians that recognize that interesting things are happening here and, and they would like to move back. Um, but you, 
yeah, the, the, the money, of course, has to be, uh, it is going to play a role. And I, I think it's naive of us to say that it, that it doesn't. You have, you know, certain, you got to put your kids in college and you got to, you got to pay for, you know, a house in Toronto and all of those things are important. Right. Uh, and, and why shouldn't the Canadian CEO make as much as the, as the Boston based right. CEO? Do you have any insights or looking at sort of the different jurisdictions? And, and, and if you don't, that's fine. Just curious, is your Ontario versus Quebec versus BC, does that Quebec incentive policy work? Like, like it, do, do you have any sense that they're able to get sort of, if someone is looking at these three different ecosystems from Boston or San Francisco or San Diego or wherever they might be, and maybe they do have an attachment to Canada, but that they're more attracted to Quebec for these reasons? Like, like I don't know if you have any insight. I wasn't able to find certain data. I'm just curious what uh, that might be. I, so I... <laughs> I don't know if we want to get Uh-oh. into a, a political discussion. I think there's, I, I think theoretically it, yes, but there's other things that create issues for recruiting um, folks to Quebec around, of course, the language, the, barrier, you know, yeah. language laws <laughs> and, you know, school rules and, and things along those Got lines it. that, do kind of scare people off. Right. Okay. So the incentive helps, but obviously other things have to be aligned as well to make sure that that all sort of flows properly. Got it. Well, fantastic. You are quite aware as, you know, particularly now, I think for whatever reason, infrastructure is probably the buzzword, I think, at least I've been hearing just everywhere that it is from some people's perspective, the reason, at least, at least from a Toronto centric, I can't speak to Vancouver. I can't speak to, to Montreal but the reason why we can't move forward fast enough. Um, and it's a pretty sort of staunch opinion from some people. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of lab space infrastructure? And, and I guess, you know, New York, I'm not as familiar with it. Um, I think you're more familiar with the Boston ecosystem. Those are big cities as well. Those are expensive cities. Yes, Boston started in Kendall Square when it was a bunch of warehouses, so I get it. It wasn't like downtown Toronto, but New York, I could argue, sit and say, it's a busy place, land is expensive, yet they're managing to kind of level up. What are your thoughts on sort of infrastructure in, you know, if we want to focus in Toronto, what are your thoughts about that as hampering us from moving forward in the life sciences, thoughts about how to move that forward in particular, maybe any learnings from Boston about how to do that because again Kendall Square is like three I think three miles square and we've got 689 companies in there like it's 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 packed tight and it's not cheap it's not like a yeah. it's not like in the middle of nowhere yeah. <laughs> so they're managing yeah. to do it what what are we missing what like where do we, how do we resolve this so i think first and foremost Canada US wet lab shortage is uh that story is being told in every single okay. conversation I have with all of my colleagues across the U.S. So I think that there's, it, when you look at the numbers, it looks, of course, there's a lot more existing wet lab space in Boston than there is in Toronto, but they still have shortage, a shortage. It. It's not like it's it's sitting there empty. Um, so I think that's a, a, that's important. That really is just a sign of all the amazing things that are happening in our industry all the amazing capital that's been put into our industry is now these companies are are scaling up and they don't have anywhere to scale up to. So I think that that's really just reflective of the money that's poured into the sector over the last few years. Um, but what is different about uh, Boston and New York 
is, you know, there's been a real engagement from what I would call, I guess, third party developers. Mm -hmm. So if you think about this notion of if you build it, they will come. So, you know, at some point someone said, okay, I'm going to just, just the way developers build office buildings now and know somebody's going to move into it. It's like, I'm going to build 600,000 square feet of lab space. And I know that someone's going to move into it. I don't need necessarily even to have an anchor tenant. Like it will, and I'll design it so it can, there's different sizes and people can rotate through. And, and so I think that they're just 10 years ahead of us in, in Boston and New York. I, and those developers are now looking at Toronto, but that's not a near-term solution. Um, you know, that's the development has to be, has to be done. So I think that we, uh, really find ourselves in this situation in Toronto because we didn't anticipate what, uh, what was coming. And so now we, you know, have this shortage and maybe to a certain degree, there are more companies that are willing to stay here. So, whereas in the past, the company may have just said, I, at a certain point, I'm going to have to pack up and go to Boston because that's where the money is. And that's where the talent is now demand on the Toronto side has probably gone mm. up because there is more money and more talent here. Uh, so I think there's, you know, both uh, uh, it, demand, demand has increased for a couple of reasons and the supply hasn't really changed. Right. Sort of, if you look at sort of, you know, what SVB seems to be seeing in Boston in terms of the ecosystem and what we're seeing here, is this sort of an imminent thing or, or I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what's going to give the developers in your perspective conviction to actually start building, right? I mean, I think people are sort of sitting on the edges and sort of just waiting and waiting. I'm just not sure what that flip is to give them conviction to say, yeah, yeah I'm willing to plunk down whatever, several hundred million dollars on a greenfield site, build it, and hopefully in three years or five years, we will have the number of ventures that we need. I, I, I sense, and again, this is where I, I, I love your perspective because you, you do have it is, it seems like in Boston, that's not even a question. It's like, I know, like, I know it will happen in three to five. Like, I know like it's not going to go from 689 to zero. I, I, do we need to tell a better narrative for the Canadian ecosystem that we will have those ventures? Or is there something else that needs to click for, for them to get yeah. conviction? I think it needs to be de-risked. And I think okay. that government plays a role in that. So I, th I think about how technology companies, you know, when they're looking for incentives from the government, you know, it, talent, it, you know, we can, we can come up with rules around making it easier to bring the talent in. But when it comes to infrastructure, like that, like life science startups, just, it's a lot more capital intensive than the typical tech startup. Um, so again, going back to, you know, our role as, you know, ecosystem builders, you know, we need to ensure that when uh, you know, whether it's the Ministry of Innovation or it's our local, you know, municipal governments or our provincial governments that we're having conversations about, you know, here, here's the impact of, uh, of, of investing in the life science, of life sciences in infrastructure from an incentive perspective. You know, even something as little as changing zoning requirements, like are there areas of the city that aren't zoned properly to, to house wet lab? And, and if you did that, would it be more inexpensive to, to develop land. You know, I, I think about, I live close to the Eglinton or the soon to be Eglinton <laughs> LRT. Um, so now you've got, the city is somewhat better networked where not everything has to be 
yeah. right in hospital row. Mm -hmm. You know, could you put, could you stick something out on the, the west end of Eglinton or the, the east end of Eglinton? Is there opportunities there? So I, I think it really takes a holistic view and a, and a sort of long-term commitment mm -hmm. um, to, to say, what can we do differently? You know, an example someone said to me, it's not really related to lab space, but in, in terms of recruiting talent is if we start having uh, foreign home buyers taxes and we're trying to recruit talent from elsewhere, right. how does that impact our ability to recruit talent? And I thought that was something interesting that in the silo of trying to control yeah. out of control housing prices, you're forgetting about the ability of companies to recruit talent. So I think within the you know infrastructure incentives, we need to be thinking, is there anything that's working against those developers coming in and what can we do to uh, de-risk it for them? That's, a, that's actually a great point, right? You, it's A lot of these things are connected, but as you said, we tend to hive things off into little pieces and just try and fix that, pretending nothing else matters. And I think you gave the Quebec tax incentives, incentives as a good example as well, right? There are other issues that need yeah. to be resolved. So that's, that's interesting. I, I know you're not, and I know you're not an IP expert, but you know, we we seem to have some challenges around IP. At least this is this is what I hear. It maybe is the reason why sort of some pharma companies aren't that excited about kind of coming in here, sort of an early stage, because it's a bit of a it's a bit of a hornet's nest sometimes. Are you familiar with sort of are these similar challenges in the Boston ecosystem as you sort of see ventures? Does that seem to sort of flow a little easier down there than it? does here? I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts on, on that and whether, I mean, clearly IP is important in life sciences, but is it, is it the, is it the obstacle that we think it is? I'm just sort of uh, from your comparison perspective. And again, yeah. fully understanding yeah. you're not an IP expert, but just curious what your thoughts yeah. are. I think my perspective is more, you know, less around the sort of legal and tax implications and more around the sort of like cultural ideas around intellectual property. So um, I think about, it, it used to be like a really almost like you, you'd want to hide it. Like <laughs> yeah. if you were a, a researcher and you were developing some IP that you were thinking about commercializing, like this was something that you wanted to sort of do really on the side and not talk to anybody about because, you know, science is science and making money is, you know, throws all your motives off and you're not going to be doing good science if, if that comes into play. Uh, and so if we... You know, if you're if you're developing some sort of intellectual property, just you know, like out license it and get back to doing the science. And I think that that uh, if I think about where Canada is today, we're way it is no that is no longer the case. We're very proud of the of the science that comes out of our universities, and I think we I think we are quite proud of of the technology that's um, been developed and commercialized. And so I was thinking about this in terms of the United States and what you know, Boston and the West Coast, because they're very different. And I think that Boston was maybe a bit more traditional, older universities uh, that were really about uh, that, you know, do the research. And whereas Silicon Valley and Stanford was a lot more about, I don't know, but if, if Stanford is more like the University of Waterloo <laughs> right. of of the United States, where it all it always was about like co-op programs and developing technology that's on the cutting edge and building companies and and uh, so I think that if if 
if the Bay Area did it right in the 70s, yep. you know, where it was like, yes, we can take this research, we can take this intellectual property, we can commercialize it. And then Boston figured it out that, you know, maybe we're at that point too. Uh, and, and someone else described it to me really, I thought it was great, is Canada is very good at uh, digging our natural resources out of the ground, sending them overseas to be refined yeah. and then buying them back. And that's what we have always done with our intellectual property as well, is we develop it and then it's like, okay, you, you figure out how we're going to commercialize this and then Canadian patients will get it after everybody else gets access to the innovation that was developed here. So um, I, I think that the commercializing intellectual property in Canada is uh, just lagging yeah. behind the, the U.S., but I feel like we're, um, we're going to get there. But that's a, that's a big fundamental shift that has to happen um, before we can even you know, get into the nitty gritty, I suppose, of the legal and the tax implications. Right. I read an interesting, I'll just sort of bring this up around IP. I read an interesting post from Atlas Ventures. If they looked at their portfolio, while we fit, so they're just for everyone, they're based in Boston, essentially. And while we think of sort of, I, I think, and this is the way I think of it, and I'm not sure everyone else does. I think we think Boston is built around Boston IP, like all the, you know, the Harvards, the MITs, the, you know, the Tufts, the Northeasterns, all those great, like great schools. And there's a lot of stuff coming out of there for sure. But it was interesting when they looked at their portfolio from an IP perspective, one third of their ventures had the IP come out of Boston. A third had it come out of somewhere else in America and a third had it come outside North America, huh. which is to me, that was a bit, bit of a like, oh, Wow. It was a bit of, because I just naturally assume that all those ventures grow from the IP internally. But what they were saying is IP is fungible. We don't care where it comes from. And actually look at portfolio. Boston is actually producing one third of our ventures from an IP perspective. Yeah. And so I guess I yeah. wonder, is yeah. there something there that says Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, like don't even just worry about what you're you know, continue to produce great research, but maybe that's not the right. whole story, right? You're trying to build a business and trying to build yeah, an industry yeah. on whatever yeah. you're producing. Let's start actually bringing yeah. in the resources, as you just said, from yeah. other jurisdictions, which may be looking for other things. Yeah. So I just thought that, and I don't know. Yeah, th this is amazing. Yeah, that's so interesting. Such a great stat. And it goes back to this, if you build it, they will come. So like they've created this, this community and this ecosystem that everybody wants to be exactly. a part of even if they didn't develop the technology. Right. And at the earliest stages. And so now I think, and now you just create this machinery where everyone realizes I don't care where the IP comes from, just bring it because I can get it to the next stage much more efficiently than any other jurisdiction. Again, yeah. it's not a magical answer, but I think it's interesting that we continue to just focus on our IP as the foundation, whereas maybe we need much more of that stuff and how do we attract other other aspects. But yeah. anyway. Um, yeah. And, and that's, I think, a great sort of North Star to set for the vision for for Toronto, say, Absolutely. is what we would like to see is you know thirty percent of the IP that's being developed here doesn't exactly come right because then we know that we're a real ecosystem as opposed to just a, a hub for developing the exactly and and we still gain all the benefits right because ultimately it's where that venture lies. Um, one so so we talked about capital and we talked about talent we talked about infrastructure and we talked about IP. Out of those four, maybe there's, you know, and maybe the answer is, I don't know, which one of those is sort of in your perspective, most important for us to kind of get right as, as sort of Canadian life sciences, or if you want to sort of narrow it down to Ontario or BC, because you think it's more relevant for one of those jurisdictions, that's fine. But any sense or, you know, 
I, I, cause I think everyone will come at it from a different perspective. And the question is, is it really one or is it all of them? <laughs> it, 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 yeah, a little, it, this is very top of mind for me right now. So I don't know if that's why I have this answer, but getting good at raising capital. Okay. Uh, I think there's some can, good Canadian technology out there that for some reason isn't able to get the right meetings or be able to meet the right investors um, to get capital into their company. And I, I, it sometimes leaves me scratching my head. Is it, you know, is it the, is it the founder? Is it the, uh, you know, the, the, the CFO that's, that's been put in charge of raising capital, but really is much better at being a practical CFO. Is it because they're Canadian? What, what's kind of the underlying reason? Cause I just see so much amazing technology and mm-hmm. I feel like some companies struggle to raise. Um, and I think the other thing that was, is very top of mind right now is there are, a, I talk to a lot of founders right now that could raise capital and have very unrealistic views of valuations. Mm, okay. Um, so it is not 2021. Um, 2021 is, is behind us. And if you're using that as your benchmark, you're, you're making a mistake. Like that was an anomaly. Um, look back to, you know, when you're looking at comparables, I think it, it, you know, behooves any company to be looking, go back to, you know, sort of five-year averages, look, start, look at 2015 and, and really think about, um, valuations, um, and how you're, you're, you know, going to be raising money and how much money you need to be raising, uh, I know for, for years we talked about uh, Canadian companies would ask, you know, would ask for 10 million, but a U.S. based investor, it's like, no, 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 I don't write $3 million checks. Like I write $10 million checks and I don't want to be right. all around. So you should be asking for 50 million. Um, so I, I think that's maybe a little bit of both talent and capital at the same time. So I think getting better at fundraising and then really understanding where the capital Got is. It. Uh, and and getting clear on narrowing that list down and talking to the right people. Gotcha. Um, th- that's that, that's great advice because we talked about before the show. I mean, I, I still think there's a disconnect between the last sort of two years and, and particularly in life science. I can't speak for the other domains, but yeah. Um, and and capital allocation. The the world has reset back to normal. It's still it's still by the way, if you look at the, the numbers, it's still way above 2019. But we're way off the highs of 2021 and 2022. So somewhere in between there is is level setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about a lot, lot of things. I want I want to maybe switch a little bit of hats for you know you're on the board I believe of, of LSO Life Sciences Ontario. So I want to sort of maybe look at it from that mm-hmm. lens from, for a little bit here. Is I'm I'm more and more f- fascinated by the framework that Massachusetts used in let's say the early 2000s. Um, when they still had a robust ecosystem, but I think it wasn't the dense, vibrant cluster it was now. And I would argue that, you know, and maybe this is incorrect, but I would argue that our ecosystem, and kind of think you've hinted as kind of, we're good, but we're back a little bit time-wise. Like, like, like we're maybe, I don't know what number you would use, but I would say a decade or two behind where the other, you know, the, the San Francisco's and the Boston's are. They've just had a longer run at it than we have. And what was interesting to me is they seemed to take to really sort of activate it, the the ecosystem in Boston, 
a really holistic approach with sort of Mass Life Sciences Center coming on in 2008 with obviously the government funding and Mass Life Sciences Collaborative, which involved the academic institution and industry actually sitting at the table together to figure out what do we need on talent? What do we need on IP? Mass Bio, which I guess is a similar to Life Science Ontario, is sort of you know member-driven institution um, looking at the entire ecosystem, having this sort of really interesting program I thought was like BioReady, which I think you just hinted on, which is actually going and evaluating each of the municipalities for what their readiness is for infrastructures and rating them and sort of just really reducing the friction for manufacturing to come in. They don't have to do all the heavy work and they could kind of, what are your thoughts? And so what do we need to do to get there? <laughs> like, like, like what's stopping us, I guess, is it like, yeah. cause we, I would argue we, we have a lot of these players, right? I mean, we don't have the, the capital from the government and the buy-in missing for sure, but we have Life Science Ontario. We have a lot of ecosystem players. We have the academics, you know, McMaster's, the U of T's, we got sort of, you know, we've got a lot of that stuff. What's stopping us from kind of getting that and sort of getting us to the next level? And this is more sort of a Life Science Ontario yeah. hat. Just what are you seeing that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. That, that's the impediment? And, and, maybe, and Great question. maybe there's a list of them, I don't know. But um, <laughs> so, you know what? What we're what we at LSO are most excited about is that the uh, provincial government has committed to a dedicated life sciences strategy, um, and so I think that to me we ha we had always said that that was going to be the key kind of tipping point that you know once um, there really is this sort of coordinated effort um, because prior to that uh, there's a lot of us that are really excited like. Hey, you know, like you, you and I have these conversations, right? You, you, you've got ideas and I've got ideas and LSO has ideas and Ohio has ideas and, and Admare has ideas. And, and we all really um, just need someone to coordinate all of that. Um, Cause I, maybe 10 years ago, some of our ideas might've been different and we may have been, been suggesting different things. I think we're all on mm, the same page okay. now. Um, and it really is just going to take some um, kind of high level effort uh, to really have that coordinated strategy. So, so I think we're on the right track. Um, I think that the other thing that we have that's maybe unique to Ontario that um, is uh, also exists in Boston is we've got a lot of the kind of Canadian headquarters of uh, multinational pharma. So if you think of something like a mm -hmm. J Labs, yeah. right, where we've got uh, you know J and J here, and then we've got um, large pharma that's making strategic investments. Um, in our early stage startup community, I think that's a key piece of the puzzle for Boston. And it didn't happen right away where you take a company like Takeda that, you know, Takeda Ventures is based in Boston. It's a Japanese company, but they're very well aware of the fact that, you know, if we're going to have venture folks looking to invest, um, that's where we should be. Uh, we should have our team located. And so I think as the, the ecosystem starts to develop here, you know, there's going to be more stories like the JLab story where we see a, 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 an additional pool of capital that's investing in the in the sector. So, uh, you know, yeah, we're we're on the right track. Everybody seems to be collaborating. Um, we have to be patient. Uh, we have to not take our eye off the ball. Uh, we've got to make sure that we really have advocates within government. Um, I think that's going to be a really critical piece. And I think we do have those advocates right now. Um, and we just need to make sure that we uh, keep uh, pastoring them, I right. suppose. Do you, do you, so you mentioned sort of pharma headquarters. Do you think, do you think that's enough, Anne? Or do you think we need like 
you know, like an R and D manufacturing to get the talent, to get the, to really sort of create the buzz and the signal. I'm just asking, and you know, we're, we're, we're on in sort of August, uh, the, where were we? August 24th today. I think most have known that Moderna is not coming to Ontario. They're going to Quebec as an example. How important was that loss? Let's call it a loss. Like, is that something to really sort of spur the ecosystem or is that just sort of a blip that kind of, yeah, they'll get some upside, but it's not a big deal. Like, like, yeah. What's what's your sense of that? Yeah. So I guess my perspective is a little bit different in that I think back to the night like late 1990s when big pharma did their own kind of foundational research yeah. and development in house. Mm-hmm. And that has really, really shifted. And there's some really uh I, I'm sure if you just Google you know, number of FDA approvals that came from small biotech versus big biotech. Like I know these numbers right. exist. It, it really, for the most part, big pharma is a commercialization machine now. And so there are, of course, exceptions. There are, and, and they are doing manufacturing, but the, the research and development of the sort of phase one assets is really happening in small biotech. And that's what, that's what Boston mm. grew out of. Like Boston really grew out of big pharma kind of divesting out of the R&D world, which then allowed all of these really small biotechs to develop and then perhaps ironically attract more big pharma investment back into Boston because they knew that's where the R&D was happening. So I think what will be what will be important in Canada is if you think about the Canadian sort of big pharma offices being very focused on commercializing assets into Canada, mm-hmm. perhaps what we need is some uh, some roles located in Canada that are looking at the innovation that's happening in Canada. So we get those that big pharma investment. But I don't think we need big pharma uh, opening up giant research okay. facilities, mm-hmm. um, although that would be great. But I just I don't know that I think there's plenty of research right. happening um, without. That. Interesting. That's good to know. So there's still hope for us. <laughs> Yes. What, uh, and and on that note, I guess is and I know you're based out of Toronto. You're obviously well connected to the Ontario, but I'm sure you have good connections into BC and Quebec. Over the last year or two years, I don't know from from just a superficial media perspective, BC like seems to have just done tremendously amazing work with you know we mentioned Epcelera Repair Therapeutics is obviously on the other side in terms of Montreal. Ontario's done some stuff, but we don't seem to get as much shine, shall we say. Do you have any perspective? Is that just sort of a media lens that that's incorrect? Or are those ecosystems actually just doing a bit better than when, what we are doing? Like, again, yeah. for population yeah. academics, all like, just adjusting for that. Is their system just better connected, whether it be capital, whether it be talent, yeah. whether it be infra- let's not focus on the reasons, but what's your sense sort of looking across those three major domains? Because those are the three major domains in, in life science, at least today. Yeah. So yeah, BC, I've always said BC punches okay. above its weight for okay. sure. Um, I, I, I think this is an Ontario centric point of view. I attribute that to the fact that they don't have the big pharma head offices there. So if you wanted to build your ecosystem, you had to build it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know right. if that's accurate. I don't know if, if, if people at NBC would agree with me, but that's kind of my perspective. Um, and I also think that it's a, uh, 
culture thing, much like the Stanford Boston story is that it's, you know, it's Vancouver, it's entrepreneurial, um, it's younger universities with less entrenched behaviors. Um, and so there's, you know, more people to be, you know, willing um, to, to take risks. And the flywheel effect has started yeah. happening there. So if you think about a company like Stem Cell Technologies, which has now started to, to you know, sort of, I, I keep using this word spit out talent, yeah. but, you know, to, to sort of talent has moved from stem cell to Abcelera. And so I think that, uh, that the flywheel effect is, is happening there. They've just got more momentum um, in BC. And uh, I don't think I, I don't know if I have an opinion on, on okay. Quebec, but I suspect incentives play a role and, and talent for right. sure. I think that there's some great uh, executive talent in, uh, in Quebec. Interesting. Okay. Got some work to do. Um, super. I'm looking at the, at the time as well. So I, I'm curious. And so I'm really excited about the next decade, but, but the show's not about me. It's about you. What are, what are kind of the three things you're most excited about in the Canadian life sciences landscape? If you look out from now 2022 to 2030, what's really kind of getting you like, like that you're seeing that maybe is just percolating or that you can see is ready to flip. Mm -hmm. I think you just mentioned the flywheel in BC, for example. So that's exciting. But are there any yeah. sort of specific sort of technologies, areas, domains, like anything? Like what, if you had to name sort of the top three things that like, wow, this is, this is going to be interesting yeah. for the next 10 years. What, what, what would you put out there? So I think maybe at a high level, I like that we are developing like core areas of expertise that we're really well known for globally. Um, so that I think is important that we're not trying to be all things to all people, um, but that we're uh, developing a reputation. And so if I think about the three that maybe are the most exciting, this computational biology piece. So uh, that's uh, you know an area where I think we punch above our weight. Uh, cell and gene therapy, uh, definitely punching above our weight and radio pharmaceuticals. Oh, okay. So I think those are three key areas where we, um, you know, for various historical reasons, um, both, you know, regulatory and from a talent perspective, and certainly an infrastructure perspective, um, that we've really developed a strong skill set in those areas. And uh, we'll be able to continue, we'll be able to continue to attract talent uh, and and capital. So those are the areas I'm most excited oh, about. Fantastic. Those, those are amazing. Um, the final question that I'd sort of like to ask everyone is, you know, the life science innovation doesn't exist in the silo. It eventually sort of hooks back to our healthcare system. And so I know we like to beat up on it every day in the Toronto Star, particularly now, obviously with COVID and, and clinicians and all that kind of jazz. But you know, there, there, I would argue there are still a lot of things that end up right in our healthcare system versus other jurisdictions. Um, just curious, sort of as we move forward, sort of 10 years, moving a little way from innovation to sort of healthcare system at large, what are you hoping doesn't change as we move forward in the next 10, you know, 10 years? What, what do you hope is guys, you know, there for you and your family that kind of works fairly well and hopefully we don't get lost in the shuffle of all the sort of innovation and change? That's such a good question. Um, and I, I, it's a tough one to, to answer. My, my, my gut reaction wants to say, um, I think we've got some really good primary care physicians. And I know that there's probably so many people that would not have that same perspective. Yeah, that's probably um, true. And I, so I've been very lucky. Um, so I, that's, I mean, I want to say like, you know, my, my primary care experience has been, 
has been really, really good and, and I hope it doesn't change. And I, I know a, a number of great primary care physicians. So maybe I would like to see, yeah. So I hope my experience doesn't change and I hope it becomes the experience for more and more uh, people. That's a great point because that is that is where it all starts, right? I mean, that's your first point of contact generally for most individuals at primary care. So yeah, I, I would... I would fully agree with that. Um, and how can people, you know, if they want to reach out to you or SVB or, you know, understand more, I know you've got a bunch of data on your, on your, that you post on your website, which is great, but if they want to sort of reach out to you, what, what's the best way of connecting with you for, for founders, investors, whoever might, might feel the, the need to do so? Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn is always the kind of quick and quick and dirty, easiest place to reach out to me. So it's uh, just, and you can just look me up Ann Woods. I, I don't know how many <laughs> of us are in LinkedIn, but Ann Woods, SVB probably. Yeah, that and uh, yeah. And then all my contact information is on the SVB website. So if you uh, just click on svb.com um, and click through to healthcare insights, you will come across my, my contact information there as well. And uh, as well as some, some great insights from my colleague, John Norris, who writes our healthcare investments and exits report. That is kind of a go-to Bible for many nice. investors in the, in the sector. Great. Thank you very much, Anne. I really appreciate your sort of thoughtful responses and giving us sort of an overview of uh, what hopefully is, is going to be an amazing decade for life sciences in, in Canada. So thank you very much for spending the time. Yeah. It was fun. It'll be good to do it at 12 months from now and, and see what the investment environment looks like. Well, I might like hold that. you to it and get you back on the show. Okay, great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.